0: For this episode, Courtney and I spoke with Cassandra Brooks, an assistant professor in environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. On Cassandra's website, it says that she works at the intersection of marine science, environmental policy, and public outreach to achieve conservation solutions. We talked about each of these topics, particularly with respect to the multiple hats that Cassandra has worn in her involvement in the development and implementation of marine protected areas in the Southern ocean around Antarctica. I hope you feel as inspired as we were when you learn more about her work. Thanks for joining. This is the Finding Sustainability Podcast. Hi, Cassandra. Thanks for coming along, being a part of this developing project of the Finding Sustainability podcast. So, I'd really love to start by asking you some questions about your own journey. It, to other guests, I've referred to this as um, their origin story. I think everyone kind of has their their own version of their origin story, which I think comes from like superheroes, right? Like Spider-Man gets bitten by a spider, and that's like his origin story. So. I know that you're from New Hampshire,
1: New Hampshire guy,
0: New Hampshire. Yes. I had missed, I was, I was like, when am I going to get to hear that for the first time?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Origin story. Um, well, so yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying I was, I was born in very, very rural New Hampshire. So I feel like that was a, very instrumental in me feeling really connected to the environment. I grew up in a childhood where I just literally played out in the woods every day, which I didn't realize till later what a privilege that was um, to really, and I had a very large family. There were five of us kids. And uh, my mom often just kicked us out of the house and <laughs> and mm-hmm. let us back in for meals. Um, at the same time, my my mom is actually a Polish immigrant. She was born actually in a Nazi camp during World War II, and uh, and grew up very much starving and poor, and uh, really instilled a sense of scarcity, I guess, to me at an early age and and the things we did in our house, like rewashing plastic bags and, you know, we weren't allowed to waste anything, um, always using hand-me-downs. You know, there's stuff that people talk about today, like being environmental. Um, but for us, it was just the way that we lived. Um, and my dad is from very rural um, Vermont and he's French uh, Abenaki, which is Native American. And so also had like a very close connection to the environment. So I feel like uh, between those three that really did create sort of the the person that i am in terms of a, a person that feels very connected to the environment and who feels very motivated to do work that hopefully changes things in the world
0: hmm. and so where exactly in new hampshire were you from where in the granite state
1: <laughs> goss down new hampshire which is Gossetown. very close to our big city manchester okay. also known as manch vegas <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay I'm not gonna ask a follow-up about that one okay um okay so I I couldn't find where you went to college actually but I'd love to hear about that is like unless there's something else that felt very formative that kind of led you in that direction but it sounds like you have this very like intensively outdoorsy upbringing
1: yeah yeah for sure um I went to Bates College in Lewiston Maine um yeah have we talked about this I don't know.
0: I went to There's... Colby college.
1: You went to Colby. Okay. Yeah.
0: Now this has to be the whole interview yeah. now. Okay.
2: I'll
1: just leave. <laughs> you know, um, Colby's is very inferior for all sorts of reasons, but we can talk about that at a different time. Um, but yeah, I went to Bates. Uh, I did, did biology, um, largely because at the time I think, uh, interdisciplinary environmental studies was just becoming a thing. And, uh, and I remember, um, you know, uh, there are five of us kids, it's it's only my um, oldest sister and me who, who finished college. And so my oldest sister is 10 years older than me. And she was very, very formative in terms of helping me understand the college process and all that, um, as well as my dad pushing me to go. And, and so I just, I just remember even having a conversation with my sister about biology versus environmental studies, and even her being like, I don't know that you'll really be able to find a job with environmental studies versus biology. Of course she did anthropology. So you know, she, she shouldn't talk, but, uh, but yeah, I remember the time thinking like biology is the way to go. I loved, I love the outdoors. I love science. Um, and, uh, and I remember at the time thinking, I just wanted to get a job that, that would let me play outside again, you know, as I did in my childhood <laughs> and biology seemed a potential, potential way to that. And during college, again, partly because my sister encouraged me to do so. I always did Um, research in the summer so I did research experience for undergraduates so for anyone who's is an undergraduate in the sciences they're called REU's and they're funded research for the summer which is fantastic and I got to do one at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science I got to do one at the Mountain Desert Island Biological Lab um, up in Maine and uh, and I also got to spend a summer working at the New England Aquarium so all those things were super also influential and I think helping me get set up.
0: So who funds those Cassandra?
1: Um, I believe most of them are funded by the national science foundation. I think some of them are also funded by, uh, by home institutions, but yeah, they're, they're fantastic for, uh, for budding scientists.
0: All right. All right. So we've gotten you into Maine. And then how do we go from one coast to the next from there to Palo Alto? Stanford. Well,
1: uh, my sister has these pictures of me when I was five with this cardboard sign that said California or bust. And I was always threatening to run away from home, I guess, as a child. And so, uh, so I do, I have this like early memory of California being this place that you go to if you're looking to get away from rural New Hampshire. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I don't know. There were a lot of things that I always had a passion for marine science, um, and, and fisheries and oceans and in New England uh, after college. I worked in outdoor education for a few years and then I also worked as a fisheries observer. Fisheries observers are people who actually go out on commercial fishing boats and collect data for the government. Um, super gnarly work, very intense, uh, but really important work because you're actually the person on the ship collecting the data that goes into management. And, uh, and I spent a year doing that and on groundfish fish uh, vessels off of Gloucester and Portsmouth, kind of these old uh, New England wow. ports. Yeah, it was, it was amazing, like 23 years old, you know. <laughs> and uh, and the, I guess it did a lot of things for me. For one, it taught me like what really happens on fishing vessels and, and the things that go wrong, the things that go right and who falls rules and who doesn't. Um, it also taught me a lot about the history of it all. Like you hear stories of, of cod being as big as me and all that, but to hear the fishermen actually tell me the stories of their father bringing in such big fish and seeing the tiny, tiny fish that they were catching and, and the problems. Um, so it also, I guess it really motivated me to to go back to school and to study marine science. And in particular, I wanted to study deep sea fisheries and, and maybe do some work that would help with management. And so, um, so I literally like with a uh, now ex-boyfriend, drove out to California and, um, and wanted to go to the Moss Landing, Santa Cruz, Monterey region. I wanted to go to Monterey Bay. I knew they were famous for like deep sea work and, and marine science. And so we drove out there and, <laughs> and I worked a temp job for a year and then uh, managed to end up at Moss Landing Marine Labs um, where I did my master's.
0: Okay. Is there, I mean, just, before, I have to ask this question. Um, is there a particular story or anecdote you remember from your time on board the fishing boats as an observer? that kind of was in an aha moment or or felt like it changed you somehow or changed your perspective? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Mike, thanks for asking about that. Um, Honestly, I think it was realizing how much it came down to individual fishermen. Um, And I was, I was trained as a scientist, like a, like a natural scientist, biologist. um, And I think at the time I wasn't even really aware of the sort of broader interdisciplinary studying the human side of things. Um, That wasn't just wasn't on my radar. And, but I realized then, you know, there'd be one fisherman who would take me out and He just either wouldn't follow the rules, or be catching really tiny fish, or just doing things that I knew um, weren't good for the for the ecosystem. I'd go out with another fisherman who he'd fish at a completely different time of day. Like one fisherman, he fished at midnight, which sucks, right, for everybody because you're up all night. But he fished at midnight. He always caught um, cod of the right size that they were supposed to be catching, and he he was really in tune with the system and also in tune with the rules and and everything. And and I realized just how much and that was my experience. Like fishermen were either really excellent, really in tune with things, really following the rules, or, you know, they were kind of not. And, uh, and I'd overhear them while, while they think I was sleeping too, and they'd be talking to each other on the radio. And so you get a real insight into <laughs> what happens on the ships. But yeah, I think, in, in you know, in retrospect, maybe I would have studied the human side then. Um, but again, it wasn't, it wasn't even on my radar. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do the science and the science will help inform the management, you
0: know? Right. Yeah. So that was the framing. I mean, that's fascinating. As a social scientist, this is something I struggle with a lot, the importance of individual personalities. Yes right? Because ultimately you can make a lot of policies, but, but really personnel is policy. Yeah. Right. So as much as anything, it matters the idiosyncrasies of, of the one individual's values. Yeah. How much does just the fact of this person being in the room versus that person ultimately lead to the changes that we see and produce the patterns that we want to generalize from, but how much can we actually generalize based on the importance of individual personalities?
1: I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, I think, um, I always tell this now when I teach um, governance is that we're managing people, we're not managing fish, we're not managing resources, we're definitely managing people. And, and I feel like you and I've had this conversation a little bit when I've said, gosh, now that I'm studying international governance and international management, and seeing that it's the people in the room that are driving whether or not we get conservation in place, whether or not it works, like individual people at the international level, which has also been really surprising and striking for me. And it makes it feel more difficult, I think a lot more difficult to do the work.
0: Well yeah, I mean it's easier, you know, when you open up a policy analysis textbook, you'll find a section on like taxes and subsidies and incentive instruments. There's no policy instrument called like accountable leadership.
1: Yeah, right.
0: It feels less endogenous to like what policymakers or academic experts could prescribe because that's how do you get that in the room? Yeah. That sounds yeah. challenging.
1: Let's write that. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Real quick.
0: <laughs> Here we go. Um, I haven't told you but we One of our goals for each episode is to have a paper written by the time the episode is the interview is done. Easy. Uh, If if you're writing your part, (laughs) I'm writing mine. So so okay, you get to Stanford and you get to I didn't even get to
1: Stanford yet. Oh. I got to Moss Landing.
0: That's right. You're you're in California.
1: I'm in California. You're near and I, Stanford. And Moss Landing is a, if, if you haven't heard of the program, it's a marine science program through Cal State University. They only offer masters, and yet every student there pretty much does a PhD quality work that lasts, takes between four to eight years, um, and oh. uh, which is, you know, like good, has its pros and cons. So I ended up doing this four year master's on life history of toothfish which are sold as Chilean sea bass. Um, and we literally were, were doing um, age validation work, lead radium dating of otoliths to, to see how old the fish get. And also I got to do some spatial analysis, where do they live, when do they mature, et cetera. Um, fantastic project, really got me intimate with with these this deep sea fish that was had a fishery developing for it in Antarctica. And I guess, For me being this person who grew up in New England and cod and all that and then when I finally got to go to Antarctica and realizing that we were fishing all the way down there and like to give you some sense it literally is the bottom of the world, the worst oceans in the world, crazy ice, crazy wind, insane swell, um, people fishing in these conditions and ships that are that are hardly seaworthy let alone ice strengthened, and it just brought home for me how bad off our fisheries must be in the world that we're sending vessels all the way down to Antarctica, to the most remote regions of the world. These are the most remote fisheries on earth. And then at the same time, doing the study that was showing that this fish, uh, toothfish, are are long-lived, slow-growing, like all the things, low fecundity that you'd expect from a, 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 you know, you can't, how do you, how do you manage these fish? And that's always it, is like deep sea fisheries end up being not sustainable in the long run. And so here I was in this master's program falling in love with Antarctica, um, you know, learning about this fish and, and already feeling like, oh, this fishery doesn't seem like it's a good thing. And I'll never forget, like, defending my master's and getting in front of my committee and being like, yeah, I feel like we need a marine protected area there. And and then saying, for one, they're like, you know, Cassandra, stop being emotional. Stop advocating. <laughs> and, uh, oh, man. and also, yeah, and also, like, that's an international space. Like, that. that's not going to happen, right? So this was, like, um, me at the at the end of my master's. At the same time, every time I went to Antarctica, I ended up doing you know, um, emails to family or like little blogs and stuff. And I started really falling in love with that. Um, being like a lens to this place, this amazing place, um, that I was having such a visceral connection to and, so that, that developed it after my master's, I actually went back and did a graduate certificate in science communication at University of California, Santa Cruz. And that was a year long intensive program where I got to learn video and photography and audio and uh, you know podcasting the whole bit, as well as the written form and got to start really publishing um, in the public sphere. And at the same time, I get this call from this Boulder based conservation photographer who had heard about me and heard about how I was studying this obscure fish where there's this growing fishery in the Ross Sea, Antarctica, and he calls me up and he's like, "We need to talk about toothfish." And he later convinced me to join him on this project called the Last Ocean, which was this global outreach campaign, really designed to uh, bring the Ross Sea, Antarctica, to the people. and And it was this amazing story. It was this place that scientists were identifying as being one of the last intact marine ecosystems left in the entire world. And so. Um, this photographer John Weller actually created this project called the last ocean and uh and brought me on and convinced me to join him and and We created media for many years um around around the ross sea so so that was my <laughs> my diversion into the sort of de- going very deep into the advocacy and public outreach side of things uh for this this one place in antarctica
0: okay <clears throat> um so this is the point of this is the point of the interview where we now have like ten possible questions to ask so um <laughs> Well, you mentioned, I love this, like, you know, the idea that getting emotional is pe- like this pejorative thing. Um, but I really liked you mentioning the the place attachment that you had to this place, the idea of being a lens mm-hmm. um, through which other people could see this place. It's interesting to learn that you had some professionalization in that direction. Mm-hmm. The main question I'd love to ask now is, could you just talk to people? Because I feel like. A big challenge for for everyone, right? Is until I talk to you, Antarctica is not real. Right. It's this place that's far away. Maybe I've seen it. It's got big waves and lots of ice. I think I wouldn't do well. Right. <laughs> um, can you talk to us about what it's like to be there? Is how has how does it affect you? Yeah.
1: And absolutely. how have you
0: developed an attachment to it?
1: yeah absolutely. um I mean, Antarctica definitely wasn't on my radar. It kind of sounded in my brain like this place that no i mean I knew people weren't from there. I knew like, okay, I probably would never go there um yeah, but I'll never forget like so we you leave from South America and then you have to um to get to the Antarctic Peninsula, you have to cross the Drake Passage, which is famous for being the worst waves in the world um and yeah, indeed, like on a good day, you can get a thirty thirty foot thirty five foot swell uh huge right, and they get much bigger than that, but that's like summer, not too bad. Um, and so that in itself makes you feel so alive. And then you go outside and the wind is just ripping at you. And even if you're in your full Antarctic gear, it is just, the wind is screaming. It's You can get hurricane force winds regularly, right? And even in the summer, the temperatures are well below the point of freezing. It can be warm. It could be like 30 degrees, not too bad. Um, but normally it's it's quite cold. The waters are below the point of freezing. So you have this very strong awareness that if I fall off the ship or even if I stay outside too long, like I will die. Like And there's... Very few places uh, that you can you can get that sort of feeling. Or and the other thing was like I remember going out and you look out at the stars and the, the stars are just brilliant. There's there's no artificial light. There's no other people around. The wildlife aren't afraid of you, so you interact with seals and penguins and and everything just comes right up to you. The whales come right up to your ship. Everything's just checking you out and curious about you. So all those things were just like made me really uh, feel like I was in this place where, where people hadn't really damaged yet. You know, how, how many places do you get to go to where you really just feel like you're, um, you're in this place that, you know, humans weren't, weren't evolved to, to live, right? And so the system has evolved without a human presence. And you very much, I very much felt like an outsider, but also very much felt like I was totally falling in love with this place that, you know, that scientists are really the ones who, who caretake for Antarctica. And I guess for me, that really, that really stuck, uh, that, that feeling about the place and then uh, for the biologist side of me, it was the most fascinating place I'd ever been in my life. You literally, um, you know, we were doing net toes for zooplankton as well as um, benthic toes for, for fish and invertebrates and-
0: Wait, what are those?
1: Um, so, so we would drop a net over the, over the water and c- catch things like krill, and um, and little animals that live in the water, and then we would drop a net deeper onto the seafloor and actually uh, drag the net, which which is a terrible thing to do because it kills everything. But we would do limited amounts of them to sort of see what was on the seafloor, and we would catch uh, fish as well as you know sponges and sea stars and and uh, things things living on the bottom. And I had at that point in my career never been somewhere that you do something like that, and you literally are pulling up animals that you're like. We're gonna call this species A. We don't know what it is. Like, no one's, no one's identified this before. Let's put it here and deal with it later. Oh, this thing. We have no idea what this is. I think it's a tunicate, which is, you know, this, this animal that has no backbone that's very gelatinous. Um, but it was just like fascinating from the biology perspective. Some of the fish have antifreeze in their blood. The fish, some of the fish have no hemoglobin, which means they have no red blood cells. They only have white blood cells. And when you, when you actually look at them, their gills are white, their blood is clear. Um, so just fascinating adaptations for these animals that are surviving in this absolutely freezing and extreme environment and they've they evolved like perfectly to that environment
0: wow so to that intensity of experience you think is is that part of what led you to want to help do the applied work
1: yeah absolutely i think for me and and like i said when i even when i went back for my master's i think i was always um driven to not just discover the science and the data but to actually put it put it into um, management and apply it in the world. And so, so then doing the media around it and falling in love with it um, was, was an amazing experience. But, but pretty early on too, um, I started realizing that, that I knew the science, I knew the outreach. I didn't know the policy. I didn't know how the policy was made. And here we were trying to work on a protected area in an international space that's, that's governed, governed by, you know, a multilateral treaty. And, and I had no idea how that worked. And so that's really what drove me to go back for a PhD is that I was realizing, like, God, I really don't know how these decisions are made. I also was hitting a wall in terms of trying to put my own voice out there. At this point, I'd worked in marine science for 15 years. And yet I kept running into this wall of you're not an expert, Sandra, you're not an expert. You know, I couldn't get funding to do projects. I couldn't I remember like, pitching a book proposal and everybody telling me, you're not an expert, you don't have a PhD. And finally just getting so frustrated with that, that like, I was like, fine, forget it. I'll go get, I'll go get the damn PhD and I'll become an expert and, and whatnot. And at the same time, I knew, we knew because we had been working on the Ross Sea that there were, was a proposal for protected area that would come um, before the international uh, body that makes decisions. And so I um, heard about this program at Stanford that um, had, you know, fantastic program. If you get in, you're funded for five years. You can do your own project. It's interdisciplinary. You know, you really get to to build your own way. And by then I was, you know, early 30s and I I really wasn't interested in, in working in someone's lab and, you know, doing the grunt work that I'd done for so many years. And so I applied and managed to get into the program and then managed to actually talk my way into the room where the international negotiations happen and start studying that, that international policy process and, and to see, see how that works. Right. And to really figure it out. So.
2: I feel I have so many questions about this um, dynamic that you, you're talking about kind of jumping back and forth between these passions of yours, (laughs) you know, of like from the science to outreach, well to the outreach and the communication and to the, to the policy. And when I was looking through your work at like, really shines through (laughs) that you do all of those things really well. And so I'm curious to hear a little bit more of like that tension that felt like you needed to go get a PhD Mm -hmm. in order to contribute. Like what was your vision of like maybe before starting your PhD of like what that would enable you to do in this space? Like, Was it about the policy or the communication, um, like about getting the leverage to be able to contribute?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question, Courtney. I mean, I, cause I I would say like, I never, I never saw myself being in academia. I never really saw myself um, getting a PhD necessarily. And I think, I think it was the realizing growing more, maybe after seeing what I'd done and doing what I'd done, feeling like I wanted to be able to put my voice out there. I wanted to be part of the process, right? Not just writing on the process or reporting on it, not just sort of collecting the data. Um, I really wanted to, to be able to be a voice out there at the same time. I really wanted to understand the policy stuff. And it, it is funny. Cause when I think back to when I was doing strict natural sciences, like you couldn't have, if you told me I'd end up doing policy, I would have been like, there's no way it's so boring. It's so slow. And it is, it's all of that. It's all, I find it very exciting though now, obviously. Um, but I think, I think it was me really feeling ready to to go deeper and to understand how the decisions are made, and I think I've also had this realization in the process of the PhD that we really have to work at the intersection of science, public, and policy to really do work in the world. At least, I think that's where I finally found where I belong. I think I, I was like, "Oh, it's science. Oh, it's it's the public. Oh, it's policy." And I'm like, "No, I I, I feel like I at least belong at that interface, um, and that's where I found that that at least I feel like we can do the." so much work in the world in terms of conservation work. Like if we don't kind of work across those, those avenues, then I feel like it's actually really hard to do that. Um, So yeah, and, and again, it was the right, it was the right program. I didn't apply for PhDs everywhere. I only applied for this one at um, Stanford, and the program is the Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, they really they they give you a ton of freedom. Uh, a lot of the folks who go into the program are older students who have worked in the world and and kind of come come to them with these uh, really big ideas. And and I'll never forget coming to uh, Larry Crowder, who was my advisor, and being like, yeah, I really I really want to work on this Ross Sea Marine Protected Area, and I want to help the process. And you know, I wasn't even like, I want to test the theory of you know, et cetera. I was like, I want to, I want to do this work. I want it to be applied and in and real world and, and feeling supported actually in that process, which I think is somewhat unusual in the academic realm. Um, and of course I feel like I did contribute to, to theory and, and all those things that you're supposed to do <laughs> along the way, but, but it was great to have that freedom. And I feel very fortunate that I had that freedom and I don't think I would have gone back to school if I, if I didn't have that opportunity.
2: It sounds awesome. And I do think that sounds unique. Um, but that's what you hope for, right? It is what you hope um, for. It's what
1: we should demand.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I, I, it seems though, I it seems like just looking at your work now, you've really maintained that policy research and the communication side, which is really like impressive. Working with like, National Geographic and Conservation International and Pew and like all of these things that are really, you know, there's. It's a different world, it seems like that communications than the policy. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how you think about we're kind of I'm kind of skipping ahead, I guess, a little That's bit in okay. yeah. <laughs> your life phase trajectory. But thinking now, you know, as a as a professor, as a researcher, how do you balance being in those spaces? Mm-hmm. Or how do you see them working together? What's your vision on
1: that? yeah, thanks for that. I think I'm still figuring that out. So, you know, I just started this job in um late uh 2017 and went on maternity leave and so really I feel like to start this job in early uh 2018. Yeah. So, 2 years in, right? So, I feel like I'm like solid 2 years in like I'm starting to figure out the job. Um I think for one, you know, and I almost feel like I shouldn't I shouldn't say this because I, it, it 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 doesn't always happen this way, but I didn't I also didn't go on the job market. Like I I did my PhD you know uh towards the end of it i started making really good connections with the ngo world with the conservation groups um and and so i was setting myself up to go work at the science policy interface probably with some dc group and still do you know science policy work in antarctica um i was not looking at academia at all like at all and uh my husband's from boulder and we were trying to find a way to to stay in boulder uh, where we have family support by then we had two little kids and and uh, and this job opened up at the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, focused on environmental policy and focused on environmental policy and natural resources <laughs> in particular. And uh, and I at the time we were thinking like no 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 that's that's not me. And uh, and we had a conversation and we were like well I'll apply. And some of my advisors at Stanford too were like Cassandra apply. They were like this university the department there is different. They do applied work. You know they'll they'll totally be be what you want. And, uh, and I was very resistant, but I did apply. And once I applied and once I started meeting the people in the department and, and really realizing that it was the right fit for me, they're very much about, uh, you know, our students getting the skills they need to do meaningful work in the world. They're very much about research that helps drive change in the world rather than again, just kind of um, high level theory. Um, and that made a huge difference to me. And I also sense that I would still be able to be a, a scientist, a natural scientist, as well as a policy person, as well as someone who communicates. Like I sense that that would be absolutely fine, um, and it has been. And so I, I think that's part of it. I feel like I have the freedom to work across those fields. Um, I do feel, I feel the pressure that I guess everyone feels in academia of like making sure I publish and making sure I'm doing grants and moving research and that feels um, somewhat stifling at times where I feel like I don't have the creative time now to even do. I mean, like I love that you guys are making a podcast. Like that's something I would love to do. Um, Even the writing of the of the blogs or I used to make videos. A lot of that I feel like I haven't had the space or energy for. I mean, part of it is like I have two young kids as well. So you have to let some things go. Um, but I actually, I hope, I hope as I sort of move down this road and <laughs> move towards tenure and, and all those things that I can, I can sort of refine um, that piece of my voice at the same time, it's cool. in that I, I feel like now I get contacted by journalists and I get to put my voice out that way. So even if I'm not writing the story, um, I get to do that. Also, I work closely with the university sort of public relations. Um, I had a paper come out two weeks ago and, I worked in, with my husband and we made our own little video and then we worked with the university and they did a press release and then uh, Pew was one of the funders. So we worked with them and they did their own thing. And so I feel like because I have the media background, I can put together like a, like a package when I do have research coming out that I'm hoping really drives something home. And that research was on marine protected areas and the sort of need for more of them in Antarctica in particular. And so it was one that I, I intentionally wanted to put a lot of attention on that research as it was coming out. So
0: so, Cassandra, uh, two qu- uh, closely related questions. What kind of videos uh, have you made? and for for someone say an academic who's interested in incorporating kind of video media more into their work, what is like a suggestion or two you might have for them? Because I think for a lot of folks, it can feel daunting as they're dealing with all the other pressures totally. you were just talking about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's huge. I mean, I have the benefit of having some training in actually the the technicalities of even you know shooting and editing. Um, and every time I've gone um, to the field, like I tend to try to work on my skills then, right? Like when you're out in the field, you're like, oh, sweet. I guess I'll, I'll do some videoing now and make mistakes. Um, and I think, I think the more you do it, the more you practice and sort of make mistakes, the easier it becomes and the better you get. So I think anybody could, even with their phone, like be out occasionally shooting videos um, of their research of where they are. Of course, ethics pending. Um, that that they're in a space they can do that and then to just play around with it and software is getting so much more user-friendly um, I feel like things are getting a lot easier to have platforms to, to even put yourself out there um, And so some of the stuff I've done uh, The one that I guess actually ended up going viral and getting the most hits was uh, this time-lapse I did from Antarctica and uh, back in 2013 and I literally just set up like a GoPro on a really strong tripod on this, on the front of a icebreaker and I set it up every day and I took footage every single day and then I compressed that footage down to five minutes and uh, worked with another Stanford student to do the music. And we put out this like, it was like, Really, uh, I guess I feel like it created a visceral experience for people. It was very satisfying for me because people actually were emailing me like, "Oh, I get now why you work in Antarctica, and I get why you love it." Even my family finally was like, "Oh, now I get it," like because it's such a gorgeous place. And so, <laughs> so that was very gratifying, even just to. And it did end up going actually all over the world. It was uh, got featured in CNN and New York Times, and it was really cool. And people, people really being like, "Wow, this place is amazing!" And I'm like, "Thank you. I've been saying that forever." Um, but that was, you know, the the post production was harder, but literally like. I'd set up, I'd set up the camera on this tripod and run back down to the lab and do my lab work and I'd come back up and then you know the camera would be pretty frozen and dead by then but comes back to life you know eventually and uh, and so that's that's kind of been my approach and even the last time I went to Antarctica um, this year same thing just kind of setting up setting up cameras on various parts of the ship and and getting footage to play with and and then it's just the kind of creative. Um, process like you're probably experiencing the podcast of just spending some time with the with the material and getting the story and that does take time so i think it's it depends on where people are at in their career um but i i do i think i think it helps tremendously and being able to tell your own story. That's the other thing, too. If you're a scientist and you're communicating your own work, you get to tell the story, right? You get to to, to, to tell people what the findings were and what they suggested rather than um, a journalist trying to interpret a technical paper. And I think that's the real beauty of um, spending that time to get some expertise yourself. So
0: mm, it's, a, it's another avenue of expression.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and I do, I do think it's getting easier like between with the GoPros or people using their own phones or, or whatnot. You don't need a really fancy camera um, to tell your story, so. Um,
2: I'm, I kind of want to switch gears and ask you about marine protected areas because we've been skirting around that for a while. Um, well, I mean, that's your work. That's what you work on, so it seems obvious to ask you about that. Um, it seems really, it's impressive and amazing that you were able to help push through this, you know, contribute to getting the Ross Sea protected. And it seems like lately now you're switching to kind of bigger scale, thinking more broadly on mm-hmm. Antarctica. And I'm wondering how being in, involved in this policy space, how, how are policymakers responding to your work? What does that relationship look like? And how are you working to inform that?
1: Oh, that's a good question. It's such a hard, I feel mean, like even though I'm like knowing the space now, it's, it's equally hard. Um, with the Ross Sea, I mean, we, I mentioned uh, my now husband started this project, The Last Ocean. He was working really closely with an Antarctic scientist. Um, and that whole process, we pulled in a filmmaker from New Zealand. You know, we worked, we worked with, with governments, we worked with, we worked with hundreds of scientists, all these different conservation groups. And that took 12 years, um, that, that work, right? So, so it just, and I even remember the year it happened. And and uh, and by then I was in the room um, sitting on the delegation, observer delegation for the conservation groups. And and I brought my husband or my my husband, John, came that year, too. And and I just remember even the stress of being in the room when it happened. There there were two week meetings that happened down in Australia and Hobart um, and uh, Hobart, Tasmania. And and all these countries come together and they sit they sit at this table and they, you know, have discussions for weeks at a time. And, and it was like the end of the meeting, I was getting to the end of the two weeks and we still didn't have consensus. They make decisions based on unanimous consensus. So everybody has to agree. And it's just like, I just remember the chair would come back and be like, oh, I think we're there. We have blah, blah, blah. And then a country would raise their flag and boom, we're like, nope, we don't have it. And, and I'll never forget the moment we got it. And, and the chair finally came back and he's like, we have consensus. And every country agreed. And everybody stood up and they were you know applauding and hugging each other. And some of the scientists were crying and we were crying, of course, in the back of the room. It was like <laughs> such an amazing moment, uh, one of the most amazing moments in my life. And I think because it showed that while it took so much time and so much effort um, from so many different Countries and groups and scientists, it showed that that we can do these huge conservation efforts, right? It actually showed that we can do it, and we can do it in in these crazy remote places, even when they're in in the Ross Sea. One is still the largest marine protected area in the world, and and we feel we do feel really really great about that. And I think it gave us hope that that we can do this kind of work, right? <laughs> elsewhere in Antarctica, elsewhere in the world, um, in the international waters and whatnot, and uh, and so that's I guess now um, I still sit in the room at Camlar. I'm now on a sort of um, scientific um, scientific uh, body delegation, still an observer group, but we get to bring forward science um, to, to the different governments, uh, trying to sort of you know help, help in making decisions based on science. So I get to be in the room, which I feel like helps tremendously. Um, I still try to do research that informs the science process. I try to do research that informs the policy process. Um, and I do, yeah, I try to do communication as well around it. And I work really closely with the conservation groups in the room, um, and I work closely with with um, some of the governments in the room and I think that's that's what you need to do right is actually work across everything and um, and I do feel like it's really hard I mean politically we're in a really hard time in the world I mean even COVID-19 aside um, internationally it's it's uh, I feel like we're in this dynamic space where and Antarctica is a lot of like kind of old boys club, like it used to be, you know, the US and the UK and Russia, and they were all in power. And now China's being more vocal. Other countries are being more vocal. The EU is very powerful. So we're in this state of flux, um, which makes it a fascinating space to study, but I think a frustrating space to try to work in and to to make progress conservation-wise.
0: Cassandra, can you tell us what this Camlar entity is? Because I think a lot of people actually yes. won't know. Sure,
1: sure. Yeah. So so the, um, the group that makes decisions around the Southern Ocean, the terrible acronym for it is CAMALAR, and that's the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. And they have um, 26 different members. Uh, that includes the EU. And yeah, they make decisions by consensus uh, all around for, for the Southern Ocean. So they're the multinational body that governs the Southern Ocean.
2: So as you were talking, Cassandra, it was about these like countries that are posturing and bring all their attitude or bag it, I don't know. <laughs> As they do It made you. me think of, you know, how you started talking about fishermen, you know, and like yeah, the sure. identities of these individual fishermen and you've like s- switched scales dramatically. Yes. Um, but it seems like those same sort of dynamics are at play.
1: Yeah, I love, I love that. Um, and I, I do, I do so think that that's true. Like, and, in, and in, the way I guess you could think about it is like, they're all, they're all gathering. It's this international space. So there's that level of like the international relations and people peacekeeping and diplomatic stuff. And then there's that level of like national interests, right. And some countries want to fish there and some countries want to, you know, do conservation there and whatnot. And then there's that level of like the individual in the room. And this is what fascinated me when I was actually studying the Rossi piece of it, of seeing how much specific individuals could divide, like, be tremendously divisive and specific individuals could, could create trust and create, like, facilitate this whole process. I mean, one of the, um, there's some really key people with the Ross Sea. Um, George Waters is one of them. He works actually with NOAA in the United States and, and people really trusted him and, and, and appreciated him. And he had worked in the Kamler space for a long time. And, and it just was, it was like fascinating to me how much like that one person could help drive that process, right? And that wasn't through bullying and that wasn't through geopolitics. That was through being a scientist and a human being <laughs> that people sincerely trusted and and got along with and and wanted to share that space with and and i think that that, that is really important. Cause again, it's a lot of people are like, Oh, it's all interactive relations or it's all geopolitics. It's all national incentives. But I think a lot of it too is that trust between individuals in the room and they're, and they're meeting, like goes back to all the literature. we know, they're meeting face to face multiple times a year. Um, for some, some of these scientists have been going for 30 years, like repeat, wow. right? Like they're just sharing the space together. And, uh, and I think that, that that makes a huge difference, you know, really cool.
0: Courtney, I love that question. Right. I mean, cause it's, there's a lot of things to try to tie together here. I mean, I think it's interesting that there's right, there's academic communities that study community-based natural resource management. There's other international IR folks. And we have this division by scale, but at the end of the day, it's going to be like a bunch of folks in a room.
1: Yes. <laughs> exactly. And they're
0: going to be talking about some stuff that's going to happen. A different scale. So I've always a yeah. <laughs> different scale. Right. Like exactly. But it's still a bunch of folks. It still matters who they are. Their personalities still matter. Um, I've always found it just like a little bit artificial that, you know, there's some actually been some research that asks, like, can we apply lessons from like small scale systems to large scale systems? And I haven't like broadcast this too loudly, but in my head, I'm like, yes, yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> is it people? All right. All right.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, so I mean, I, uh, follow up question. I'd love to ask, um, just to piggyback on Courtney's question, which I loved is, You you mentioned earlier that so much depends on personality with the Fishers and now we're back to, okay, so much of this depends on personality again, this really charismatic person. Mm -hmm. Does that present a challenge for learning from this case and trying to apply what worked, worked in this case to other cases? Yeah. Or if, assuming you agree that that might be a worthwhile goal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought a lot about that um, because I think as far as case studies go, right. Like I, I did this pretty extreme case study. It was like in Antarctica around protected areas. Um, this, this one, one multinational body doesn't apply to anything anywhere. Um, and I think, I think it does. I think it does in the sense of, having, again, to work at that intersection of science and public and the policy, I think uh, understanding that um, incentives drive everything and finding those sort of levers of influence. I think the thing that's more complicated at the international scale is, is again, I think working across those three levels between international relations, you know, national interests, and then the individuals in the room. And, and maybe that's one of the Big differences at a smaller scale maybe it's a lot more about the individuals where i think at the international scale those individuals are still bound by their national governments who are still bound by these international treaties and so it kind of right. creates this um you know they they they're working across those levels but i think sometimes they're bound by by what they they just don't have the power to do so maybe the power the power comes in peace comes in a lot more um and those like i guess those institutional arrangements that are going across those different scales so but I do. I think. I think there's a lot we can learn about these lessons. I, you know, and and I talked to a lot of people about the the high seas, the international waters that that account for seventy percent of the global oceans. And and there's a new treaty being negotiated for our international waters and potentially to to set up uh, protected areas there. And I think that is such a harder case because you're talking about, you know hundreds of countries, <laughs> Sorry, you know, uh, or hundred one 196, I forget exactly how many are part of that agreement, but it's, it's almost 200 countries, right, versus, um, you know, 20 something. And I think that that if you're trying to align incentives and levers of influence across that, that sort of um, multinational level, that seems like a lot harder. Same thing with the United Nations uh, climate change agreements, right? Like these are, I think, a lot harder to work in. So, so
2: I'd love to follow up on that and ask specifically why (laughs) because or to dig in a little bit more on why i mean you sort of just described it a little bit but yeah you know you think of antarctica as being like part of what makes it so difficult is that it's this really international place but and nobody's there so you know people have weird claims to it totally (laughs) um but if you get into you know the high seas or other marine protected areas that are contested between two countries or um maybe, maybe what's challenging there, but also what do you see as opportunities? Like, what do you see as the, mm. you know, the, the cases for we can make this happen and we can, um, I mean, because it's, uh, I was reading some of your papers um, preparing for this and, it, and talking about how, you know, these big marine protected areas are really working. Mm-hmm. So how, how can we do that more?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, I think in terms of the barrier, so Antarctica is a pretty unique space and that, like you said, you have these, um, no, no people live there. So you don't, you're not sort of dealing with, um, indigenous peoples and rights. Um, you're not, a lot of the uses are, it's just fishing, tourism, science, really. Those are the main uses. Mining is banned. Um, sovereignty is suspended. Military uses are banned. Nuclear, anything is banned. So a lot of activities are just straight out banned. And instead of having, you know, 200 countries involved, you only have in the treaty. So the treaty governs the continent and deals with suspending nuclear, nuclearization, military mining. And that has 53 different countries that get to make decisions. The oceans have 26, as I mentioned. And so it's pretty small. It's a pretty small group of countries. And part of that is that the agreement to be part of Of these uh, international treaties is that you have to actually work in Antarctica. And so that's a financial barrier for so many countries, right? Um, And maybe you just have a seasonal base, but you have to be doing some work down there. Um, So that really puts decision making in the hands of a smaller number of countries and arguably an elite, um, an elite group that, that, you know, uh, some, some geopolitical scholars would say that Antarctic countries love that they're like yes we are the small group of countries that get to be in power and control this space and the history is huge there i mean these old explorers that were planting flags and and all these historical claims that countries made they're all suspended the claims are suspended it's an international space but the claims remain real to the countries that that made them and so what you end up having is actually countries who are very very vested in maintaining a presence in antarctica and they really i mean they really care about keeping their science operations and keeping keeping a presence there and and having Antarctica be this place of peace and science um, that still is nuclear free and all that. So it means a lot to the countries that work there. So you have opportunities for leadership, I think in Antarctica that maybe you don't have in other places or where you wouldn't have the same motivation because you're not looking to sort of protect your long-term slice of the pie. (laughs) You know, Um, I I think, I think that might be part of it is that geopolitics ends, ends up driving um, conservation in kind of a cool way, ends up driving peace as well. And, and that diplomacy that happens um, in Antarctica that I don't know that happens in other spaces. At the same time, it points to the opportunity that you could have when countries do take leadership on issues. And, and that's that's a huge thing anywhere, right? Like if you actually have individuals <laughs> and countries willing to to um, step up and, and be a leader and be a voice in the world, that that can make a huge difference. And and again, that that might be part of the mess that globally it feels like we're in right now is that there's Um, there's certainly poor leadership around some of the big issues in the world. So,
2: And it seems like one of those that we haven't mentioned is climate change. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Which I presume is going to be a big challenge in Antarctica.
1: Yeah, it's terrible in Antarctica. I mean, we had the um, hottest summer on record in in Antarctica this year. Um, And just even in my experience, Um, I was back there in November, December, um, of this last year. And, and I went to an area of the peninsula that I hadn't been in like 15 years. And, and even just in my period of time going there, I couldn't believe the changes I had seen. My daughter is named Adeli after the Adeli penguin. And I'm on this trip. And like, she kept saying, send me a picture of Adeli's mom. And we didn't see any. And they're one of the species that are just moving south, they need cold waters. Um, But you know, they will get to a point where they can't move further south, like they simply just can't. And so they're doing okay in areas that are staying cold, but in areas around the Antarctic Peninsula, which are rapidly warming, um, these penguins are just being driven out by by now other species. And at the same time, you just could see the drastic reductions in ice that are happening. And this is causing, you know, impacts throughout the whole ecosystem in terms of uh, productivity and krill. Um, and krill are the thing that everything feeds on. Like, like Antarctic krill are one of the most abundant um, animals on the planet. According to some estimates, they are the most abundant. And whales come from all over the world to feed on krill in Antarctica, and and they feed all the the seals and the penguins and a lot of the fish. And so they're this critical piece that um, we're seeing major changes happening in. And the hard thing is, it's hard to know, it's hard to know what. <laughs> you know what is within the normal range or you know and and what's um what's new and i think that's one of the biggest things we're all struggling with is is what's what's happening because of climate change even what's happening because of fishing what's happening because of increased tourism um and how do you how do you manage for all those things and and my thing would be it's it's cumulative we have all these things happening at once we know the system is changing and that, that's where I end up pushing for protected areas, right? Because we know if we at least reduce fishing effort and reduce human impacts that the system can be more resilient to environmental change. This will only work for so long in Antarctica, and it will only work if we're actually working with other institutions and reducing, you know, our emissions and, and all those other pieces. But I think it gives the system the best chance of being resilient if we actually um, close it off to other human impacts, so...
0: Mm. Yeah, there's a very powerful, what is it, it was um, Planet Earth 2 had this like incredibly powerful sequence of, I'm forgetting the name of the animal, but like these uh, walruses or something like falling down.
1: Yes, I heard about that. I haven't oh seen my God. it yet. I've heard it's haunting. It's, it's heartbreaking. Haunting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, I, I mean, I think that's that's the reality we're dealing with is these systems yeah. in flux and... And I guess, you know, coming back to my own background, I think that's part of what helps about having a natural sciences um, roots because I feel like I can, I can sort of look at look at the data and the information and then try to think about, okay, what kind of policy can can help with this or not, you know, or like, is this the right policy? Will it even be effective and, and whatnot? And, uh, and yeah, and I think, I think in Antarctica, again, because we have few uses, it becomes almost simpler to say, yes, this is one tool we have um, that can work locally, right? Otherwise we have to work Globally, um, and that's a whole other issue. So,
0: right, Courtney, did you have any final questions you wanted to make sure to ask?
2: I have one follow up on that, and then I'll and then I'll hand it back to you, Michael. But I'm wondering how this. So, this is coming out of some of my own interests in how climate change is brought into management. How does like the climate change data? How does that influence or and or not what's happening Mm -hmm. in conversations amongst the treaty? Um, I can't remember the acronym that you just...
1: CAMLAR. CAMELAR. Camelar. Yeah, terrible acronym.
2: <laughs> How does that uh, change dynamics in CAMELAR? <laughs> right,
1: exactly. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, some of the things that the scientists are talking about um, is actually incorporating climate change into decision rules. And so what you might do is say... Okay say you have a a stock assessment, but it's, it's, you know, a single species management approach, maybe you actually incorporate environmental uncertainty into it, or maybe you actually say, okay, if we're expecting productivity to go down, we have a more precautionary catch limit, or we, you know, we close it all together. Um, So that's, the scientists are actually talking about it, like actually incorporating some environmental variability or incorporating more precaution into things like catch rules. Um, the hard thing is it's, it's, I guess like any political body, the scientists may, may have some agreement on how to do that, but then when they try to get it passed as a policy or through the, through the sort of diplomatic, um, hoop, if you will, um, it, it gets, you know, shut down. Um, they even like, there was a proposal to say anything that Kamlar was doing that they would actually have climate change statements, like, okay, if this is a policy thing we're talking about, let's think about what that means in the future for climate change. Will this still work? I mean, people have come up with some um, great things that actually would would help force us to, like, have climate change be part of the management decisions. And then it's just been, it's been a really um, unsettling. There's just certain countries, um, including our own, who will not have climate change be up for discussion in these, um, in these spaces. Even, gosh, last year, you know, there was this, amazing report that came out by the ipcc and it was looking at the oceans and cryosphere the cryosphere is our ice system so it was this this report that came out hundreds of scientists worked on it thousands of papers cited and the report basically showed that our poles our ice system is is going to be devastated like soon like not you know we're not talking like 100 years out like it's going to be devastated and our oceans are suffering and and they did call for like marine protected areas and they called for stronger action on climate change and so many countries actually brought that report to CAMLAR, and they're like, see, we need to, we need to do something. We need to talk about this. And this was just last November. And, uh, and it just was so frustrating to sit in that room and see certain countries just be like, no, we can't agree to, to doing anything on this issue right now. And I think, I think that's a real challenge. And that's one I don't, I don't like feel like we can study this till we're blue in the face and maybe not figure out the solution when it, when it really is just like these political barriers and ideologies and, um, and this uh, kind of strange time we're living in. So, But I do think the one thing that maybe we can learn from COVID-19 is how quickly countries can act when they feel a real threat. Like when people start feeling a threat to human survival, a threat to their, their country as an institution that's functioning, that things can change really quickly. And obviously we're in a terrible situation economically and whatnot, but, but I feel like it did show that, that, you know, even with climate change, like things are moving so slowly, but it made me realize like once people are feeling the real threat of it, then things might change quickly. It just will probably be too late to avoid catastrophic changes. But, um, but, you know, it does show that, that humanity can change quickly and act quickly.
2: Thanks for that positive note.
1: (laughs) I appreciate it. (laughs) It's a challenge to
0: talk about these things.
1: It is a challenge to talk about it. But I do, and actually, I think it makes me think back to the Antarctic Treaty was actually signed at the height of the Cold War. And it was literally um, in this moment of tension between the US and USSR. And they were both talking about launching atmospheric rockets from the South Pole. And if you read headlines from the time it was 1957 58, um, it was basically like, oh my gosh. USSR is going to blackmail the entire Southern hemisphere. They're going to launch nuclear war from Antarctica. They already have the Northern hemisphere covered, right? Because they have that huge space and, and it really became this insane, um, like arms race down in Antarctica, the U.S. was sending four thousand troops at a time to go like learn how to fight on the ice, and, and instead of blowing up Antarctica and instead of blowing up ourselves, we actually did sign this peace treaty that suspended all claims and suspended all military activities, and that happened really quickly. That happened over the course of of a few months, really, and so again, I do think it brought home that like when people are really you know feeling the threat of something then um then they act quickly right and they they will act in like this almost interest of humankind which which I do think is amazing so
0: Yeah it does make you feel like I mean something I had meant to ask and ask earlier is um you know it's always one thing to set up some new formal rules it's another thing to implement them which is really that's kind of sisyphean you're never done with enforcement you're never done with like just yeah. the actions of governance I've been in couple different countries where I would, they would tell me, well, we have like these beautiful environmental laws if only people followed them. And I was like, well, yes, yeah, right. that's the hard part. Right. And so I was interested hearing you talk about this, you know, as you said, kind of miraculous process, you get by the barrier of unanimous decision rules, which is hard. And then, and then that just opens up a whole new door to the challenge of, okay, like, how do you enforce this? How do you make this work? And I feel like we're in the past 10 minutes, it's, partly been what we're talking about is just there's this stuff is gonna keep happening and we're gonna have to continually keep adapting to the, that stuff. It's not just like write some things on a piece of paper and we're done.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I think, yeah, that comes down to, again, people, right? (laughs) People, people being involved in the rulemaking process, right? So that they actually then follow the rules later, um, or having, you know, having the right, the right rules in place that actually people can follow and will follow. And I would say so far in the Southern Ocean, we do, we do seem to have, have that where countries, maybe because it's consensus, they all have to come on board and agree. And so when they do, um, so far, so far, they tend to follow the rules. So.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um okay. Well, Cassandra, are there so you're at you're at Boulder, you've been there a couple years. When you think about, you know, the next challenges you want to tackle individually with the groups that you're working with, um, what comes to mind?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I will say that um, and I know it may it sounds cliche, a lot of people say, it, but having kids changed a lot of things for me. Um, I think it made it made the environmental crisis we're in feel even more real in thinking about when you when you look at the dates and when you realize okay maybe it's my not my lifetime but oh my god that's my kid's lifetime and certainly their kid's lifetime and I think that's made it all feel more imminent and more um, intense to me and it's it's definitely made me branch out from thinking beyond okay there's Antarctica and the Southern Ocean and protecting these amazing fish that I fell in love with all these years ago and then there's what can we actually do about climate change, about biodiversity, um, and so I feel like that's that's kind of where my thinking is now is how can I work more broadly on those issues um, in the world um, but yeah but I, I I think I'm still figuring out exactly you know how how to do that and how to do that from here and how to do that from a university setting i amazing thing about being um, being a professor at this point is getting to teach and getting to engage with, with these youth who are pissed. The youth we get in our program are just, they're so angry about climate change, they're angry about the world that, that this older generation, including myself at this point, is leaving them. Um, and they feel very disempowered, they don't know what to do. And I try to make it part of my goal to empower them, to tell them conservation success stories, right? To show them there are ways to do this work in the world and it isn't all hopeless. And that's one of my main goals with all this work, to be honest, is to try to put a positive message out there and to try to study conservation success. So not just like, what are the barriers and what, what do we need to do? It's how have we done it in the past and how can we do it moving Mm. forward? Because that's really where I think we need to be. And I think we absolutely have to, while we have to be real with people and tell them the reality of the future we're going to live in, I think we absolutely have to give a message of hope. And you think back on amazing movements in the world like you know martin luther king if if there was this i have a nightmare and everything is terrible it may have not had the same power of having a dream and getting people involved and invested in your dream for the world and and i feel very strongly about that that we have to have hope and we have to to spread that message especially for for this generation coming up and they're so fired up and they're so ready to act and i see our responsibility as as being the ones helping them know where to put their energy and how to act and what actually will lead to um, positive outcomes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think that's been a challenge for the perspective of environmental studies. I and mean, we've had that challenge, we'll hear from students, well, it's, we're hearing about all of these failed cases, you know, can right. you get, throw us a bone? Like right. wh- what's working somewhere? Um, there is, it, it does remind me of this project that I haven't looked at recently called the Seeds of the Anthropocene. It's essentially trying to collect like positive stories and I think it'd be good to build on things like that. Like what we should try harder to share success stories.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we know, we know, right. We, we, I mean, I feel like a lot of the work you've done and, and the work I'm always teaching Eleanor Ostrom to people too. And the work she did, you know, showing that there are ways that communities can, right. Can conserve. And and I like to say yes. And across scales, right. It's not just some small scale obscure, um, community thing right that we actually can do this at larger scales and and i think that is a really i think if we gather those stories there's real power in it right because it's not a one-off it actually becomes part of the collective thinking right
0: yeah
2: i
1: just thought that was a really
2: nice like full circle there of coming back to thinking about the power of narratives you know and that you spend this time you, you split your time trying to craft those narratives like trying to sort of study those cases but then craft them into narratives and it's really cool to hear how you're passing that along to your students. Really just a comment, not a question. <laughs> mm. Thank you.
0: Well it's exciting. It's I know that you're there w- with Christian Anderson as well, who is one of the <laughs> earlier guests on this show. So it's, I mean it'd be interesting to see whether in the future you were, you know, you did some field work in the US and be mm. fun to follow too. Um, Absolutely. Okay. So are there any final thoughts you want to share, um resources you want to make sure to point listeners to, et cetera?
1: only just thanking, thanking you all for, for your time and then putting these stories out there. It's just, it's, it shows that actually researchers can, can put energy and time into telling stories and to helping other people tell their stories. So, so thank you.
0: Yeah. It's nice to tell stories again.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Cassandra. Great to hear more about your work. It's a pleasure, Courtney and Michael. Good to see you both. Great to meet you. Hopefully we'll get to meet in person sometime in the future. I hope so too. I hope so too. Bye guys.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is a pretty small shop, so we don't really have a long list of producers to thank here, or really any list. You can find us at your local neighborhood podcasting app, such as Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify. You can also find us on our website, essnetwork.net. And on this site, you can find information about other projects related to environmental social science that we're working on. You can also use this website to contact us with any ideas or feedback that you might have about the show. So reach out. We'd love to hear from you.